How's everybody doing this morning? You know where we're going to be this morning? Back in Colossians. Been a long time, huh? About two months. Two months. We're going to pick it up in chapter 3 where we left off two months ago. Our text this morning is going to be verses 9 through 11 in Colossians. So if you turn there, if you're using a blue Bible we provide, it's on page 984. So just as a heads up, there's extra stuff here that I didn't intend on having, so I'm going to talk a little faster this morning. It's not because I had like five cups of coffee. It's intentional, so I want to make sure we get through in a timely fashion. But since it's been two months, in order to bring you up to speed, everyone up to speed to where we're at now, in verse 9 of chapter 3, I want to do a, a little review of what we covered so far in the chapter. Back in verses 1 through 4, Paul exhorted the Colossians to seek and to set their minds on things that are above rather than things that are on earth. In other words, they were to be striving for the things that are important to God, the things that he delights in and that are of value beyond this present age in which we live, things of eternal importance. Christians are to live in this world in light of the world to come. That is, in light of Christ's coming kingdom, of which we've been made citizens. He is our life. Christ is our life, Paul says. And we are his people, looking forward in hope to his return and to the establishment of his kingdom upon this earth and to our glory and vindication in him. We're to live in light of that. And Paul then says in verses 5 through 8 that we are to, in light of this reality of our salvation in Christ, we are to stamp out any earthliness that is in us. That is, any traces of our old, sinful, self-serving ways which run contrary to the teaching and example of Christ and which are a hindrance to us living in a manner that is worthy of him and pleasing to him. We're to stamp them out, eliminate earthly ways, put them to death. In order to orient our lives around Christ and to experience the fullness of the new life that we have in him, we must be putting to death and putting away the sinful attitudes and behaviors that once ruled over us and held us in spiritual bondage. We must be killing our sin in the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We must take the fight all the way to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We saw that in the list he gave. Take that fight all the way to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and attack sin at its roots, the root of pride, self-love, and covetousness, because it is from these roots that sin will otherwise grow and work its way out in all kinds of ungodly behavior such as, as we saw in the list Paul gave, sexual immorality and abusive speech. And in verse 8, he gave this second list, this second group of sins that are to be put away and put to death by the Christian. And the progression in this list, in verse 8, indicates how unchecked sinful anger can work its way out in forms of sinful speech, such as, Slander and obscene talk, filthy talk, 
abusive speech. And this, at this point, this then brings us to verse 9, where Paul mentions another sin of the tongue. He says in verse 9, Do not lie to one another. Do not lie to one another. While this is not a part of a direct part of the list in verse 8, as you'll see, it's broken off, it's given as a command. While it's not a direct part of the list, it is certainly another example of earthliness or, or ungodliness that Paul was telling the Colossian Christians to put away and put to death. The practice of lying, that is, the practice of making untrue statements in order to deceive others, poisons interpersonal communication, and it violates trust at the most fundamental level. You want to destroy the foundation of any relationship, lying will do it. Once you take away trust and you deceive someone and there's no trust, there can't be a relationship. It poisons communication. It violates trust at the most fundamental level. It makes true fellowship and genuine loving relationships impossible, in other words. So we can see that why would it be important to Paul? He's writing to the church. Lying is the chief weapon, we have to remember. It's the chief weapon in the arsenal of Satan. As the Lord said, he is a liar and the father of lies. That's his weapon of choice, deceit. Lying is contrary to the nature of God who is true and whose word is truth. He saves sinners by giving them understanding so that they come to know and believe the truth, that is, the truth of the gospel, and place their faith in his only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself is the embodiment of truth and who delivers us from the wrath to come. Those who trust in Christ as the way, the truth, and the life are joined to him and thus to one another by the Spirit of God. Earlier in his letter, Paul referred to the Colossians as faithful brothers in Christ, as those who had been knit together in love because they were in Christ. The danger that lying to one another would bring is that it would begin to dismantle that unity. And it would begin to drive them apart. It would work directly against God's purpose for them as his redeemed people. One people, redeemed in Christ. If anything would divide them and tear them apart, that would work directly contrary to God's purpose for his redeemed people. In what's referred to as the high priestly prayer, Christ prays for his church, his people, that they may all be one, that we would all be united together in him. This is essentially the point that Paul makes with his statements following his command to the Colossians that they not lie to one another. In these verses we're looking at this morning, this is the point that he's getting to. So let's read the the passage as a whole. Starting in verse 9, Paul writes, Do not lie to one another. Why? 
seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The first thing Paul does here is he points the Colossians back to the moment of their conversion, when they heard and believed the gospel and as a result repented and placed their faith in Christ. He's pointing them back to that moment. It was at that moment that they all had effectively put off the old rebellious self and had put on the the new redeemed self. The imagery here is that of changing one's clothes. In other words, when the Colossians heard and believed the gospel, they finally, for the first time, truly came to grips with their own filthiness as sinners before God. They came to truly recognize how how dirty and foul their sinful way of life was before him. And coming under conviction of the truth and confessing their their guilt before God, they they stripped off this foul and polluted garments and they cast it behind them. So the person they had been up to that point, the one who lived as a self-serving, idolatrous rebel against God, that person was no more. They were no longer that person. Paul says they put that person off. They stripped off the filthy garment that was their unspiritual and ungodly self, and then they put on the new and clean garments of Christ and were now clothed in his righteousness and with his life. So this putting off of the old self and putting on of the new self Essentially, this was their repentance and faith. It was their response after coming to believe the gospel. Because the one who's dead in sins has no desire to put off the sinful ways. His hardened towards God. But those who had come to believe the gospel have been enabled to do that because they were given life, born again. This putting off of the old self, this, this clear break, this repentance, and turn, you know, turning away from sin and turning to God in faith was clear evidence that they indeed had been born again. Jesus said, you'll not see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, and this is of the Spirit. It's not a work of man. Now, how do we see it? There's a change. Who you were is no more. You are a new person. This repentance and faith of putting off the old self, putting on the new, is the outward sign of God's saving work within them. And so it is with everyone who places their faith in Christ. Through the proclamation of the gospel, the Father drew them to his Son, and the Son gave them life by means of the Holy Spirit, causing them to be born again. Their repentance and faith, their putting off of the old self, putting on of the new, it came about only because God had intervened 
Because God had graciously made them alive and given them a new heart and a new spirit. Salvation is of the Lord. Good uh, illustration of this we read in Paul's letter to Titus. Excellent name. We're naming our baby boy Titus. Verses 3 through 6 of chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Does that sound familiar? Who were you once? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. In another passage, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, he he wrote to them, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the new birth. It isn't just a matter of receiving by faith the righteousness of Christ and and being forgiven. We are actually changed. God changes us. He causes us to be born again. Now back in our text, notice that Paul reminded the Colossians in verse 9 that they had put off the old self with its practices. With its practices. So the result of true conversion... It isn't merely a change in one's mind, although it starts there. But it's not merely a change in your mind. It's also a change in one's lifestyle. It is, in fact, the beginning of a a completely new life. When you truly believe the gospel and truly give your life to Christ... You not only embrace a new way of thinking, but also a new way of life. And your old way of life is left behind. No turning back. No turning back. There's a definitive change in the direction of your life because why? Because there is a definitive change in the desires of your heart. And this is due to God's gracious intervention and saving work Within you, if the heart is not changed by God, there will be no change in the direction of your life. There might be a profession, but it'll be empty. So the one in whom God has graciously intervened and done his saving work 
To those who are in Christ, they are a, a, therefore a new creation because God has given them a new heart and a new spirit. You're a new creation in Christ. The, the old life is gone and the new life has come. To the one who professes, if the old life is not gone, you are not born again. You are not saved. Your faith is in vain. It's an empty faith. The one who has truly repented and believed on Christ, believed the gospel, and been born again, that person who they were, that old life is gone, and they've stepped into a new life. If there's no change, no life change, then you are not truly saved. If you greatly admire the person and work of Jesus and are willing to accept that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and are willing to call him Lord. And if you like the idea, this this message of being justified by grace and being forgiven of your sins, but you are not willing to forsake your sin and your self-centered, self-serving way of life, then you have not been born again. The old self has not been put off. There is no new self. You remain enslaved to your sin and condemned before God. You must, in faith, look to Christ to give you spiritual life and to save you out of your wretched and helpless condition, and you must repent. You must repent. If there truly is a change of heart, a miraculous change of heart, a new heart, there will be a change in the direction of life. There will be repentance, genuine, lasting repentance. Paul reminds the Colossians that they did just that. They had repented. In fact, that was his reasoning as to why they should not lie to one another or tolerate any kind of sin in their lives. Why? Because they had put off the old self with its practices. That is, the practices that characterize their old, earthly, unspiritual, ungodly lies before God saved them. Lying would be one of those things. In other words, they had repented of their sinful way of life. They left it behind when they turned to faith in Christ. Christ was now their life. And they were to live in a manner worthy of him. Earthly and godly thinking and behavior unfitting for the people who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Earthly and ungodly thinking and behavior unfitting for the people who belong to the man sent from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, and who now is there in glory at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, as Paul said previously in verses 5 through 8, we must be putting to death what is earthly in us. That is, we must be putting our sin to death. We must be eliminating these earthly ways of life. We who were once dead in sin are now to be dead to sin. We are no longer bound to sin. In Christ, we are bound to Christ, and he has set us free from sin. Not only that, but in Christ, 
Paul says, we've put on the new self. We have been born again. We have been given a new heart and a new spirit. The spirit of God has taken up residence within us. And he not only empowers us to live in a manner worthy of Christ, but he is working to conform us to the likeness of Christ. Do you understand that? If you've been born again, you're able to not sin. You're able to live a holy life. Though you won't do it perfectly, you now are able to please the Lord and live in a manner worthy of him. And if indeed you are born again, you will do that. The old self is gone. The new has come. As Paul says in verse 10, we have put on the new self. So this idea of the new self, the goal is to conform us. The Spirit is working to conform us to the likeness of Christ. But we see that in verse 10, Paul says, we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Literally, according to the image of the one who created it, who created the new self. We're being renewed in knowledge after the image of the one who created our new self. Now, all the mankind bears the image of God. And that's because God, in the beginning, created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, our first parents, in his own image. Man was made in the image of God. However, as we read, when we get to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, his image in them was marred and corrupted. And so it has been with all of mankind who are descended from them including us. People's hearts are naturally inclined away from God. Their minds are naturally hostile towards God. They still bear the image of God, but because sin has so polluted that image, God must do a miraculous work in them if it is to be restored. And that's what he does in those whom he saves. God the Father, by the Holy Spirit, made us new and gave us life in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we are indeed a new creation. Though we still have these fallen bodies in which the presence of sin remains as evidenced by their decay, corruption, our spirit is new and no longer in complete bondage to the sin. So that new creation is started on the inside. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, very straightforwardly, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in Ephesians, Paul wrote, for we, those who are in Christ, whom God is saved by his grace, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But you are his creation, his new creation. He has done something new. In Christ, he has made you new. We are his workmanship. Paul also says in his letter to the Ephesians that the new self that we put on was created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
So, in other words, the image of God has begun to be restored in us. Notice what Paul says in verse 10 of our text. He says this, our new self is what? It's being renewed. It's being renewed. It's being renewed after the image of its creator. And what is the goal of this renewal? What is the ultimate outcome? Paul says in Romans that it's to be conformed to the image of Christ, who himself is the image of God, and who also is the one through whom all things were created. God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, and thus he would restore his image in us. He called you out of darkness. He opened your hearts to the gospel. He drew you to his Son and justified you through faith in him. Ultimately, he will glorify you and you will be like Christ with a resurrection body like his. Body and soul, we will be perfected. There will be no more presence of sin in us. We will at last experience the fullness of salvation. You haven't experienced it yet. There's more to come. God is at work. There's a grand finale coming. Glory. But we're not there yet. And until that day, we are, as Paul says, being renewed. You are being renewed. That's the Christian life. Being renewed. The work of the Spirit. Sanctification throughout your life. That is the here and now for the Christian. So how does Paul say we're being renewed in verse 10? He says we're being renewed in what? Knowledge. Knowledge. Though our outer, though our outer self is subject to decay and will waste away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And this is because of the work of the Holy Spirit who uses the Word of God to continually renew our minds. You see, he, he uses means. He doesn't just infuse us with newness. He uses the Word of God, the Scriptures, to continually be renewing our minds. And in this way, the Spirit brings us more and more into conformity with the likeness of Christ. We're being renewed in knowledge According to the Lord's Prayer for his disciples, we are sanctified by the truth, that is, by God's word. He said to the Father, your word is truth. So as we do the work, did you hear that? The work of listening to and reading and studying and applying and meditating on God's word, the Holy Spirit then does the work of renewing us in the spirit of our minds. And it is in this way that we are transformed. This is why Paul prayed for the Colossians in the following way. Back in chapter 1, he prayed this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You see that? You want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What do you need? You need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and 
continually increasing in the knowledge of God. True knowledge comes from God's word. And we will experience continual renewal as we grow in that knowledge and apply it to our daily lives. It doesn't just stay up here. One commentator puts it this way, The new man is said to be renewed in knowledge because an ignorant soul cannot be a good soul. The grace of God works upon the will and affections by renewing the understanding. Now we'll see another thing that Paul teaches about the new self. In verse 10, he spoke of its activity, the fact that we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. And now in verse 11, he speaks of the dignity and unity of the new self. He says in verse 11, with regard to the new self, here there is, no, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What we basically see here are categories of people who essentially did not associate with one another because of their differences in culture and or class. They were divided along those lines. First, let's take a closer look at the, these terms that Paul uses so that we may better understand the point he's making. Let's color it in a little bit. First, he mentions Greek and Jew. Greek and Jew. The term Jew referred to an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one who belonged to the chosen people of God and who followed the law of God with its distinct regulations and customs. The non-Jew, or the non-Israelite, was most broadly referred to as a Gentile, and this was any person who is not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are Gentiles. The term Gentiles, therefore, was the category into which all the rest of mankind outside of the nation of Israel fell. They were the nations outside of God's chosen nation. Non-Jews, non-Israelites, Gentiles. Now, when we look at this text, though, we see that Paul doesn't use the term Gentile, this, this broad term. But he says Greek, Greek and Jew. And as we read on in this verse, we see that he actually uses three terms that refer to different categories of Gentile people. Greek, barbarian, and Scythian. The term Greek here does not refer to Gentiles who belong to the nation of, of Greece. It's like, yeah, he's a Greek. Yeah, he was born in Greece. It's broader than that. It referred to those who were part of the empire-wide Greek culture. The empire-wide Greek culture. Although the Mediterranean world at the time was under Roman rule, right? First century, Roman rule, Roman empire. Although it was the time of Roman rule, it, the Mediterranean world was permeated by the culture of the Greeks who had ruled centuries before. According to one church historian, when the Romans began to control the Eastern world, 
They came into contact with Greek culture and found it immensely attractive. By the first century BC, the Greek language, Greek methods of education, Greek art and literature, and Greek philosophy and science had taken root across the entire Roman Empire. Everyone in the eastern half of the empire who lived in a city spoke Greek as his first language. In the western half of the empire, Latin was the first language, but most educated people would also have spoken Greek as their second language. Now, although Jews in the first century essentially lived in a Greek world, Greek culture, they, for the most part, remained almost completely separated from it and had very little social contact with those who were not Jews. The Greek, as far as they were concerned, despite his supposed education and sophistication, was still a pagan idolater who practiced wickedness. No association, even with the Greek, the best of the Gentiles. However, there were, all, uh, there were those among the Greeks who had turned from their paganism to Judaism and worshipped the God of Israel. What of them? These were devout people who feared God. But because they didn't embrace all the ceremonial aspects of God's law for Israel, most particularly circumcision, the Jews still considered them to be outsiders and therefore did not associate with them. Even if someone was born of a Jewish parent, he was considered an outsider unless he was circumcised. As was the case with Timothy, Paul's ministry companion. Uh, his mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. And he wasn't circumcised. But when he was joining Paul's missionary team, Paul had him circumcised first before they set out. Why? So that he would have full access to minister the gospel to the Jews, in addition to the Gentiles. Needless to say, between the Greek and the Jew, the, the, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, there was, as Paul put it in Ephesians, a dividing wall of hostility. They did not associate. There was a dividing wall of hostility between these two groups. Now we see that Paul goes on to mention two additional Gentile categories. First, he mentions the barbarian. The barbarian. Barbarians were actually, they were basically foreigners. That is, foreigners to the Greco-Roman world. They were, in other words, they were outside of the Roman Empire. Those were the barbarians. The term barbarian basically referred to those who were aliens to Greco-Roman culture and who spoke neither Greek nor Latin. The Greeks coined the term barbarian, which referred to how the speech of foreigners sounded to their ears. Bar, 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 bar. One of those barbarians. Bar, 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 don't know what he's saying. That's where the word comes from. The barbarian was seen by the Greeks as uncivilized and culturally inferior to them. Paul then, so that's barbarian. Paul then mentions the Scythian, the Scythian. This was considered the worst of the barbarians. It's like a subcategory. Among those uncivilized, unsophisticated barbarians is the Scythian. This was considered the worst 
More than being seen as uncivilized, they were seen as downright savages. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus, who had written this about four centuries before Paul's day, described Scythians this way. They were nomads who neither plowed nor sowed, moving about in wagons and carrying their dwellings with them. They had the most filthy habits and never washed in water. They drank the blood of the first enemy killed in battle and made napkins of the scalps and drinking bowls of the skulls of the slain. War was their chief business, and they were a terrible scourge to the nations of Western Asia. The first century Jewish historian, Josephus, wrote this, Now as to the Scythians, they take pleasure in killing men and differ little from brute beasts. So nothing had changed over those 400 years. Seen as brute beasts, savages. So we've seen barbarian, Scythian. Now notice the category of person Paul mentions next. Slave. While the barbarian was considered to be uncultured, and uncivilized, and the Scythian was considered to be a brute beast. Beast, The slave was considered to just be property, a living tool, a possession. Slaves could be sold, rented, cruelly mistreated, or killed at any time at the whim of their, own, at the whim of their owners. According to one encyclopedia article, Slaves were the lowest class of society, and even freed criminals had more rights. Slaves had no rights at all, in fact, and certainly no legal status or individuality. They could not create relations or families, nor could they own property. To all intents and purposes, they were merely the property of a particular owner. Just like any other piece of property, a building, a chair, or a vase, the only difference was that they could speak. That was the view of the slave. So to be a slave was the the least desirable station in life for anyone to be in. Better to be a free barbarian than an enslaved Greek. Although most slaves in the Roman Empire were foreigners. But the class division between the slave and the free person was as wide as the cultural division between the Greek and the Scythians. So you see, these people groups, not only do they not associate with each other, but they are worlds apart, divided. There's a great chasm between them. There's no unity and fellowship. So Paul's listed all these major points of division among men that create insurmountable barriers between them. To the point that they not only don't associate with one another, but they're even opposed to one another, viewing themselves as inherently superior and others as inherently inferior. But what does Paul say in this list? With the new self put on, there is not Greek and Jew. There's not circumcised and uncircumcised. There's not barbarian, Scythian, Slave, free. Now, he's not saying that these distinctions just disappear among Christians or that they are altogether obliterated. If a Greek believed the gospel, he remained a Greek but was now a Christian also. If a slave believed the gospel, he remained a slave but was now a Christian 
also. What Paul is saying is that these categories of distinction that that keep people divided and even opposed to one another, they fade from significance and into irrelevance among those who are born again. No longer significant, no longer relevant. Yes, these distinctions are there, but not important to those among those who are born again. Why? Why is that? Because, as Paul says at the end of verse 11, Christ is all and in all. That's the last thing he says. In other words, Christ is everything, and he is in every one of us who believe. He is all, and he is in all. Christ is all. He is the overriding principle. He is our Lord, our life, our hope, and our future glory. He is central and supreme, and our fellowship with him overrules our earthbound divisions and loyalties. Our fellowship with him and with his people overrides those earthbound divisions and loyalties. Also, Paul says, Christ is in all. Through the Holy Spirit, as we said, he, he, he dwells in the hearts of those who are his. Christ dwells in the hearts of those who are his by the Holy Spirit. The Christian Jew, the Christian Greek, even the Christian Scythian, all have Christ indwelling them. They are all equally members of the body of Christ, the church. They belong to Christ's heavenly family as children of God. And in the bond of this everlasting fellowship, they are each, each other's brothers and sisters now. When the Christian free person looks at the Christian slave, when that time was just considered property. No individuality, just a possession. But when the Christian free person looks at the Christian slave, or when the Christian Greek looks at the Christian foreigner, he sees a brother. He sees a sister. At least he should. Otherwise, there's something more earthly, there's some more earthly thinking that needs to be put to death. Those who are in Christ are in the family of God, belong to Christ's redeemed people. They are one. They are members of his body. They are brothers and sisters, regardless of whatever their background is, regardless of whatever their station in life. You look around this room, you see how mixed up it is with all these differences we have. Man, we look different. We have different stories, different backgrounds, different vocations, different colors of our skin. What a silly thing to be divided over. Our melanin counts. The world divides over those things and even goes after each other over those things. But you look around this room and what, what, where's the, what is the bond? It's Christ. And, and quite perfectly, we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper today. Because we, we, we are showing we all partake of Christ. Our faith is in him, and he has made us a new creation. Now we are all one in him, forgiven, ransomed, 
One faith, one spirit who indwells all of us, unites us together. We are knit together in love. One commentator says this, There is now no difference arising from different country or different condition and circumstance of life. It as much it is as much the duty of the one as of the other to be holy, and as much the privilege of the one as of the other to receive from God the grace to be so. Christ came to take down all partition walls, that all might stand on the same level before God, both in duty and privilege. Jonathan Edwards, a a revered pastor and theologian of the early 18th century, said of Justin Martyr, the renowned second century Christian apologist, Justin Martyr, he says, an eminent father in the Christian church, says that in his days there was no part of mankind, whether Greeks or barbarians, or by what name soever they were called, even the most rude and unpolished nations where prayers and thanksgivings were not made to the great creator of the world through the name of the crucified Jesus. And this was just one century after the church began. One century after the church began, and this man, leader in the church, observed that there, there is no part of mankind in the, in the known world in the, in the Mediterranean world, where, where Greeks or barbarians, people that are even considered among the most rude and unpolished nations, where prayers and thanksgivings were not made the great creator of the world. Basically, where there were not Christians. God has redeemed people from all these nations, these cultures. For those in Christ, God not only, or for those in Christ, not only does the, the barrier between men and God come down, the barrier that separates us from God, that comes down. But, but also, for those in Christ, the barriers that they have between each other effectively come down as well. So you still remain, you have these distinctions, but they're no longer a barrier. They no longer keep you divided from one another. You are united in Christ. We are created in Christ as one new man, in place of the us versus them categories. So that all, although we, we still have our external differences, we have, we have peace with one another. Regardless of your background, regardless of your nationality and culture and class, we all through Christ have access, in, as Paul says, in one spirit to the Father. We, we used to be divided and in opposition. We used to have our, our circles It was us versus them, but now we're united in Christ. And here's the final point I want you to consider. It's not just that we have all been made alive and made new as individuals. God saved me. I have my relationship with Jesus. I'm born again. It's not just that we've been, you know, experienced that newness individually. God has certainly done that. But we are now belonging to one new people. When God saves the sinner, he he saves him into a redeemed people. 
one new people, ransomed from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And our renewal is moving to the same end, that we would be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I'll close it with this comment, uh, commentator's observation or what he drew from this passage. There must, he says, there must therefore be mutual welcome and respect within the people of God. Nobody must allow prejudices from their pre-Christian days to distort the new humanity which God has created in and through the new man, the new self. And it's all thanks to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word this morning, guiding our understanding to realize the rich realities of our salvation in Christ, not just as individuals, but as a a new people whom you have called us to be, whom you have made us. We We have been knit together by your spirit in love in Christ, and now we indeed are one, and we pray that we would, that we would consider one another as more important than ourselves, that we would indeed be loving one another because we would be seeing Christ in one another, that we indeed would be treating one another as brothers and sisters. And pray for the unity of our church, Father, that we would not allow any form of division to to rise up among us, and that we would rejoice in the diversity of this body because it indeed shows your plan and purpose for the world, and that is to redeem out from fallen, rebellious, sinful mankind a a new people for yourself who come from every nation, every tribe, every language. And Lord Jesus, we we rejoice in you, our, our Lord and our King, We rejoice that you've made us citizens of your coming kingdom, and we look forward to that day when you will glorify us and sin will no longer be within us, that we would be free from its very presence and experience the fullness of the unity and oneness that you have with the Father and that you have prayed that we would have with you as well. Keep us Unified as a church, may we be loving one another. May we be persevering in your word and growing up to full maturity to your likeness. May you protect us from deceit, from sin that would divide us. Help us to spur one another on. Help us to help one another, to put off old earthly ways that would create division and put on righteousness, holiness, goodness, faithfulness, kindness towards one another. May we, that be our testimony to a watching world. And may we seek to be proclaimers of the message that does save sinners and reconciles them to you, that they too might share in this joy that we have in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.